I gotta fly back to LA. I can just now talk about this. <laughs> I'm flying. This was two years ago. Oh, I remember the fucking day! I'm flying back from New York. It's two years ago. I did drugs then. Oh, 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 oh they see through me! They see through What we just heard there was the legendary comedian Sam Kennison talking about doing drugs. Which leads us uh, directly into our episode today of Comedy History 101. Where we talk about the history of comedy. Because uh, today's episode, uh, I am Harmon Leon, by the way, and with me, of course, is Scott Kalonico. How are you, Scott? Howdy, I'm doing good, Harmon. How are things over there? Yeehaw, I'm doing excellent. But it leads us into our episode today, not only of drugs, not only of Sam Kennison, but we're going to do a history of the legendary comedy store condo. They called it Crest Hill. What do you know about Crest Hill, Scott? Um, I think there might have been some drugs done there. Anything else? <laughs> that, was, that was mostly what I was just kind of referencing. I thought we kind of we kind of covered that, but apparently there was a lot of drugs going on there. So yeah, and a lot of famous comedians all kind of lived together. It was kind of the uh, frat house for '80s comedians. Yeah, exactly. It was the frat house of '80s comedians, and it was also kind of a sign of the changing of the times of stand-up comedy because it, it, Mitzi Shore basically gave the comedy store condo to the comedians in I believe it was 1979 and as as the listeners of this podcast comedy history 101 know uh on from our episode on the comedy store strike uh originally like stand-up comedy was sort of carefree back in the like early 70s and all that kind of changed when Freddie Prinze got a sitcom by doing a set at the comedy store and and the comedians went on strike at the comedy store because they demanded to be paid. And Scott was 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 it a uh, was it an ugly thing the it, comedy store strike? It, yes, it was a little ugly. I just want to clarify that they weren't going on strike because Freddie Prince got a deal. That's that's not why they were on strike. They were just on they're on strike because uh, they felt like they they deserved a little bit of payment um, for all the work that they were doing. And I, I happen to agree with them. Yeah, and the comedy store, as we all know, uh, was owned and run by Mitzi Shore, who uh, sadly this month uh, passed away. And, but she was was the backbone and and kind of energy of the comedy store and. Again, we covered this in our episode on uh, the history of the Comedy Store strike. Um, uh, Sammy Shore, who is Polly Shore's father, along with Mitzi Shore, opened the Comedy Store, I believe, was it 1973? 1973 is what it says in the note. Uh, uh, no, 1974. 1975, it looks like about. They divorced in 74. Yeah, but um, Sammy opened it, and then uh, they oh, yeah. divorced right, yeah, in they 1974. Right. So, so I, I believe it was like... Yeah, so again, if you want to know the exact year the comedy store opened, listen to our episode on the history 
of the Comedy Store strike because we clearly give that date. But this is not <laughs> yeah. a history yeah, on no, when the Comedy Store opened. This is not that episode. No, no, that'd be, that's just a different episode. <laughs> Yeah, but basically this leads to the Comedy Store uh, condo, which uh, they divorced uh, Sammy Shore and Mitzi Shore divorced in 1974. And in order to lower his alimony payments, Sammy Shore, who, he, did you know, like he opened for like Elvis Presley? Yeah, that was uh, that was like his big claim to fame is that he was he, he was over Elvis Presley and Polly Shore was bounced on Elvis's lap, apparently. Oh, wow, I didn't know that one. Yeah, that was- um, so anyways, uh, he and Mitzi divorced in 1974, and in order to get lower alimony payments, he just simply gave her the Comedy Store Comedy Club. Yeah, I mean, that was the uh, that was kind of the deal, and it was a pretty big house. Um, it's a uh, 1925 Spanish-style four-bedroom, four-bathroom home, which is, that's pretty, that's pretty, uh, you know, that's, that's not huge, but it's pretty big by uh, today's standards. So it was about 5,000 square feet. Um, over right off the Sunset Strip. Yeah, so basically, uh, she got Mitzi Shore got the club in 1974, but in 1976, uh, she negotiated to buy the entire building, and part of the deal of buying the entire building is they got the Crest Hill home, which was located directly behind the club as part of the deal. Um, and mm-hmm. another, and again, this is not a history of the comedy store, but the comedy store used to be called Ciro's Nightclub, which was like one of the biggest nightclubs in Hollywood between, um, I'd say like 1940s to like early 60s or so. And it was a nightclub where like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis used to perform at. And they also used to go party at the Crest Hill house after the show. Yeah, and there was some kind of a rumor. I don't know if it was ever proven, but some people think there there was or there used to be a uh, underground tunnel that linked the house to the uh, the comedy store or the the nightclub at the time. Yeah, and a lot of what we're referencing is in this BuzzFeed article on the history of the comedy store condo. Um, I believe they thought there was a tunnel, but the guy who wrote the story um, went with a real estate agent, and they opened up this cubby hole. And it was just sort of just a kind of a cubby hole <laughs> without a tunnel, just but full it, of cobwebs. It, it could have been there, though. That's what I'm just saying. I'm saying it could be there. But what connects it is, is this house, this Crestville house, this Spanish-style home, four bedrooms, four bathrooms, located at 8420 Crest Hill Road, was always a party house. It was a party house with uh, the Rat Pack. They were partying there when... Frank Sinatra was smacking and round the broads. Yeah, hey, give me another drink, girly. <laughs> uh, no, give me another drink, girly. I'm going to smack around uh, the broads. Forget about uh, it. No, that's, I don't know why he did. Uh, but he's from Hoboken, New Jersey. Right, exactly. Um, so in 1979, as as you all know from our, our previous episode, uh, comedian Steve Lebetkin jumped off the roof of the Riot Hyatt and into the Comedy Store parking lot, which ended... The comedy store strike. It didn't end, but that was like a, one of the bitter ends of of this kind of innocent era of comedy. Mm-hmm. And after settling the strike, uh, Mitzi Shores, uh, kind of as a reconciliation of this bitter strike, started putting up comedians at the the Crest Hill home as a perk of being part of the comedy store family. Right. She wasn't. Um... It wasn't like putting people up, but, you know, it was like, hey, here's a free room. It was more like kind of a, hey, you know, you need a place to crash tonight after you're set. Here you go. 
Yeah, the comedians like actually started living there. I right, mean, because yeah. it was like the, the the first comedian to live there, and again, he's completely lost in history. But at one time, was like like on the fast track of being one of the biggest comics in the country was uh, Argus Hamilton. Are you an alcoholic? Take this simple test. Do you often ask for that fourth or fifth drink before breakfast? Do you find it impossible to drive without a beer between your legs? Yeah, he's still actually, he's still around. I put a note if uh, people want to go look at his website, ArgusHamilton.com. And the really weird thing is you look at the website, looks like it hasn't been updated since 1997. Uh, and when in fact it was updated just this month, <laughs> so it it has frames and everything. So Argus is still out there doing comedy. Yeah, and he was the first one to move into the house. I think he was also well, not thinking, but he was also dating Mitzi Shore, so right, that was yeah. part of the deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of the original people that moved into the house was uh, Andrew Dice Clay, Jack and Jill went up the hill, both with a buck and a quarter. Jill came down with two fifty. Silverstein, who you might know about from where? Uh, our last episode of Comedy History 101. Mm-hmm, exactly. We talked about uh, the controversy. Con- um, con- back then, did you see the E! True Hollywood uh, documentary on the Comedy Store? Yes, I did. Um, it is so funny because they have early Andrew Dice Clay. Realized there was no introduction for me. We'll just leave it at nature's masterpiece somewhere. My name is Dice. Where he's like wearing a suit jacket, but he was kind of like a, a crime noir kind of character. <laughs> like it was a totally different character. It was like they had like a stand-up bass sort of playing behind him. And he was kind of like a, a, a Humphrey Bogart Maltese Falcon type kind of thing. Like, my name's Dice. You know, it was like, it was a completely different character. I mean, again, it was interesting to see that he eventually evolved that from, you know, everything has to have a start. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, he's in the movie, um, what's the movie? I think he's in, um, I think it's Pretty in Pink. He's in one of like one of the John Hughes movies as a doorman. Yeah, he's in Pretty in Pink. Yeah, that's the one. But this was like, I mean, it was like black and white video that, you know, it was probably from the 70s because uh-huh. I believe people started moving into the Comedy Store house. It was 1979 right. when uh, Argus Hamilton began to move in and... He lived there with a comedian from Detroit named Mike Biner, who everyone called Kid Comedy. <laughs> still... did, you, did you find it? Do you find anything on Mike Biner? Oh, yeah, he's actually still he's kind of out there. He did a he does a lot of movies. Um, who who who's Mike Biner? I'm Mike Biner. Welcome to the Westwood Comedy Store. For those of you that don't know, we have a comedy store on Sunset Boulevard. We have a comedy store in La Jolla. And for those of you that don't get a lot of the jokes tonight, we're opening up a brand new remedial comedy store. Wow. Uh, well, he kind of does. He does like a lot of. He did a lot of movies. He did, the first movie was a movie called Coupe de Ville. It was back in the ninety, in actually nineteen ninety, and then did a bunch of movies, uh-huh. and then did like a Will Smith movie where he wrote and directed it. But then he he was the the mind behind the mind of the married man, which was on HBO, like an HBO. Uh, Kind of sitcom back when they were first starting that. Um, apparently, apparently received mig- negative to mixed reviews. Um, so he's a behind the comic that turned behind the scenes yeah. kind of guy. Yeah, he's a good comic, and he's still kind of active. He's doing movies and, and whatnot. 
Yeah, so again, he and uh, Argus Hamilton were like the first two comedians to move in there. And again, the reflection of, you know, suddenly, you know, you're getting, you're a paid comedian. Uh, you can actually make money doing comedy. That kind of reflected with the rise of the comedy store condo. Because suddenly all these comedians that, you know, a couple of years before were striking because they wouldn't even be paid $15 a set. Uh, suddenly, like, there's all these comedy clubs opening up all over the country. And because you had the the clout of being, like, a comedy store guy, you're getting paid, like, you know, $5,000 a week to go headline in, you know, like, Houston or Atlanta. Yeah, I mean, that back then, too, is, like, they not only would they pay you, they pay your airfare, and then they put you up in their own. You know, each each one of these clubs usually typically had a comedy condo that they put you up in. Yeah, exactly. And this is like the first of that type of thing because, uh, you know, Bruce just like suddenly, all right, these, these, you know, this is these guys' jobs. They need a place to stay. And in and their home club, they stay at these condos. Then they go on the road and stay. And yet, you know, the Atlanta version of the comedy store condo. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of my, to, not to be controversial here, I guess I will be a little controversial, Harmon. But, Why, are you, you going to be racist? No, 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 not that, no. Oh, no, just be, kidding. Who was that? Again? No, sorry. No, who was that guy? Oh, we'll, get, we'll come back to him, be sure to drop in there. We'll come to him, yeah, 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 he's my new favorite comic, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, no, go ahead, I go think, because it, it, it's weird, because yeah, you think that, you so okay, the comedy condos, you typically think, this is where the headliner stays, but I don't think the, at the time, they didn't really have have headliners at the comedy store so they wouldn't have maybe you know they had a couple guys sleeping there but it wasn't like they had a room reserved for headliners at the club below that, that's not that's not well it, yeah but they were all they're all headliners well, yeah. they would go on the road and headline mm-hmm. uh, but the, you know the comedy store is a showcase room right where it's like they don't have the headliner middle opener right. sort of format they just have you know it's just showcase you know, main room and uh, the the original room. Uh, so it's really kind of, it was like, yeah, I mean, it's like, again, it's like a who's who of comedy that stayed at the condo. And essentially they're all, you know, headliners, but this is where, you know, they lived when they were off the road. Right. Yes. And along this time, this is like when Robin Williams uh, starred in Mork and Mindy. And like Letterman was starting to guest host The Tonight Show a lot. And they were starting to get like famous people coming down to the comedy store. You know, people like Willie Nelson, Burt Reynolds, Ringo Starr, Sugar Ray Leonard. And they all not only went to the comedy store, but afterwards they would party at the Crest Hill house. I mean, not only just in addition to all those stars that you mentioned, Harmon, and they, they are stars indeed, mm-hmm. but another member. They, of, yeah, uh, Ringo played in a little group called The Beatles, yeah, I think. Yeah, he uh, did. But, um, Burt Reynolds played in a little movie called Smokey and the Bandit. That's right, and, and Smokey and the Bandit Part Not two. three, that, that, co- that, had, that starred Jackie Gleason. Oh, that's right. I think that was called Smokey is the Bandit. Oh, that's right. Was he in part three? Oh, we'll have to look into that. Like no, I think that one just starred Jackie Gleason. But anyways, that, that's a whole other podcast. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that'll be our next one. But also, in addition to all those stars, living in the comedy condo was uh, Full House star Dave Coulier. I think they should have Scooby and Shaggy work in the airport sniffing for drugs, because if anybody's going to find some weed, it's that Shaggy dude. <laughs> Scoob, Rarara. <laughs> Grab some for us, good buddy. See you in the van. Yeah, Scooby snacks. <laughs> well, he was—he was 
soon to be full house star Dave right, Couillet. Right, yeah, he was yeah. just a stand-up comedian Dave Couillet. Right. Yeah, and there was a story about him in 1979. Uh, they had another housemate who also worked as a runner for Mitzi, and he said that uh, the guy, he went on the road one week, Dave Couillet, and he came back and this guy like stole all his clothes and he denied it. And one night he was at the Westwood Comedy Store and he saw the guy like wearing one of his shirts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, and that gentleman, they just, he's always referred to as, quote, mysterious housemate, unquote, um, Jack Leon Packer. And I've tried to, I tried yeah. to, to Google him a little bit, and I couldn't find anything. Couldn't, couldn't find anything yeah, about the mysterious you'd, it would, The BuzzFeed article would come up. Yeah, yeah no, that was it. But that, that, that seems. But 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 that would be that would be like the part of the movie where uh, if you're in uh, the William Campbell format, that would just be, ah, ha, ha, that's an innocent. He just stole his shirt. That's innocent. And then it starts getting a little bit darker. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So next arrive was uh, oh you I, I I bet you love this guy he was from Russia do you know who I'm talking about no who what, what was did he have a catchphrase or anything what surprises me American people don't know we have comedy in Russia we have comedians they're there they're dead <laughs> they're there it's very hard to do comedy in Soviet Union you have to write out all your material and you send it to Department of Jokes. I'm not making this up. They send it back to you censored. You have to stay with the script. You cannot improvise. If someone heckles you from the audience, you can't say, like, your mother wears army boots. Because she probably does. And she will hurt you. Well, he was Russian, and he had trouble figuring out the ways things worked in America. And because and, and he's Russian and, and not used to the American crust, customs he would always exclaim what a country oh my god was this the Yakov Smirnov (laughs) yes the Yakov Smirnov from Ukraine and it's funny they wrote there's something to think about it's like in part of his appeal was uh uh what they said is like he arrived in the 80s in the height of uh you know Reagan era cold war paranoia so he was like kind of like patriotic in a way of going you know Russia's horrible. America, what a country. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm a new immigrant. Uh-huh. And, and, and just another little trivia fact, he he was very good as a handyman and actually worked uh, for Mitzi at the comedy store as a handyman, like doing any kind of like electrical work. I think his father was an engineer. Yeah, because he, he'd actually done, he worked on cruise or like the Russian version of cruise ships in the um, Black Sea. That was kind of what his career was uh, before he came over to the States. Yeah, I mean, he was a comedian, so yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he wasn't just, like, out of nowhere, but he was, you know, he was a Russian comedian. Yeah. So, you know, he had some chops, but um, how he got his break was he was on with Andrew Dice Clay on the Rodney Dangerfield Young Comedian Special, and Yakov said he was kind of scared of Andrew Dice Clay, and then one day uh, he, he heard a knock on the door at the Crest Hill house, and it was Andrew Dice Clay. Hey, yeah, well, he yo, was, I'm your, your new roommate. Yeah, I think too. Uh, yeah, in between that, he was like, yeah, like you were saying, he was scared of Andrew Dice Clay, and then he was like, oh wow, great, I'll never have to see that guy again. And then he moves to L.A. and it's like, whoop, that's your roommate. Yeah, and the crazy part is, uh, again, the Crest Hill house was a big party house, but yet. Yakov Smirnoff and Andrew Dice Clay didn't really party. 
I know Yakov Smirnov did, but I think Andrew Dice Clay was pretty kind of straight edge on yeah, the whole deal. And I don't think they're—I don't think they were technically roommates. I think they were housemates. It, sound, it sounded like um, apparently Andrew Dice Clay had what was called the maids' room, or what used to be a maids' room, that was located off the kitchen, um, that had barred windows on it, from which he received a blowjob one time. But uh, apparently, so he was right next to the kitchen. No, and not not from not from Yakov Smirnov. No, no, not from Yakov Smirnov. Well, they weren't roommates, so it, it, that's what I was. <laughs> what saying. a country! <laughs> blowjob through the window. But apparently the, the kitchen held a huge oak table, and that's kind of where people would hold court, and they would just kind of do their partying. So, yeah, that would be a little annoying if you were trying to be straight-edge dude and you were in the room right next to the party room. Yeah, and that actually caused some of the tension. In, in Yakov, uh, it is what a country sort of naivety. Uh, he would say every morning there would be a mirror on the, on the table. He didn't know why, and... and and he thought, why, why would someone take the mirror off the wall and eat powdered donuts over the mirror? What a crazy American tradition. And it wasn't powdered donuts. <laughs> it was cocaine. Because uh, some of the people, it was like Richard Pryor and Robin Williams would always be there. Um, they said Richard Pryor would be there. You know, he was pretty darn established, uh, you know, at that time. Uh-huh. But, you know, lots of blow would be around. Yeah. And so, you know, he would turn up. In America, a mirror does you. In America, a mirror does you off mirror. No, it, in America, you, you watch mirror. In Russia, mirror watches you. <laughs> yeah, there you do go. Cocaine. <laughs> do cocaine. <laughs> so do you think... Do you, so, so do you... Uh, wait, do you, do you think... Uh, so, you're, so you're thinking you think Yakov partied a little bit? I don't think he did. Oh, he okay. Well, he said he didn't. Okay. You know, he was just... Um, Russian and a handyman. I think I think it was somebody like Mike Binder or somebody said, you know, he was helped him. Like, I think he put an eight foot tall portrait of himself in the stairwell of the house. Yeah, a, of um, <laughs> Something weird like yeah, that. Of Yakov. Yeah. Yeah. Like some comedian that lived there said he helped Yakov uh, put a eight foot tall portrait of Yakov. Over the stairway. Yeah, which think, is kind of funny. Yeah, that is kind of I funny. I think I want that portrait. That'd be pretty cool. I wonder where that is now. Maybe it's in the Yakov Smirnoff house of Branson. Yeah, Branson, Missouri. Because <laughs> it's basically has a theater called the Yakov Smirnoff Theater. So I think if they have an eight foot tall portrait, that would be the place yeah, to where build, it would go. But uh, Mike Biner recalls that when Robin Williams was there uh, partying, there'd be lots of girls and lots of celebrities like uh, Robin Williams, Andy Kaufman, Rod Stewart, who would all come to the house to score Coke. All right. And not powdered donuts. Not powdered donuts whatsoever. So, Harmon, when you bring up Coke, that means we're now approaching the 80s. So... We're going to look at now for the period of 1981 to around 1984 in the old comedy house. Um, and that's when we had kind of a new influx of talent. And uh, that came about when Argus Hamilton was gigging, gigging in Houston when he met uh, Bill Hicks and Sam Kinison, who were back in Houston known as the Outlaw Comics. They were a big deal in Houston at the comedy workshop there. Um, I think there was a comedy workshop in Austin as well, like an annex. 
Um, but yeah, the Outlaw oh, Comics, yeah. yeah, they were a big deal. They were known around the town. Um, and also, another one of the com- Outlaw Comics who will come up later on is a gentleman by the name of Carl LeBeauf. <laughs> That's the sound that a man makes in his mind when he sees a woman he really wants. Uh, he was also at the time, and I guess um, Hamilton kind of convinced those guys to move out to L.A. And he had, they had a place, so I know uh, Bill Hicks and Sam Kinison were going out there. So they all eventually moved out there, and Kinison, believe it or not, became the doorman at the comedy store in the early 80s. Uh, he slept at the Westwood location, but then partied at the uh, house the Crest Hill house on Sunset set. How, how far, the Westwood's not too far, right? Yeah, that's where UCLA is. Yeah, so okay. um, it's not a far, I mean, it's like if you go straight down Sunset, it leads you right to UCLA. Okay. But then again, you know, everything in LA is just a little bit farther away than you think, but it's not yeah. far whatsoever. Uh, yeah, and how um, Argus Hamilton met Sam Kennison was, he, he he was in Houston gigging and, and he's, on the table was the biggest like I don't what do you call like a ball of cocaine a rock eight, eight I don't ball. know I don't even eight know these man. drunk turns <laughs> yeah and he said on the other side of the eight ball was Sam Kennison and that was the first time that he met him <laughs> there you go welcome <laughs> welcome to Houston yeah and so Sam Kennison moved out and again you know we'll do a whole nother episode just on Sam Kennison but um, he was just one of those guys he had just had that. You know, he was a preacher, so he had that preacher stage presence. So he knew how to work a crowd. And he's just been really exciting to watch because just everyone would go. He would just be the ultimate comedian's comedian, you know, uh, when he was on stage. So anyways, um, so the Crestville House. uh, So Sam Kennison eventually moved into the Crestville House and, and... and sort of like uh, the place became like a comedy laboratory where, you know, through like all night bullshit sessions or just staying up doing drugs, you know, the comedians sort of tested and honed material uh, out on each other. And Andrew Dice Clay put it in his book that uh, he took sort of claimed that he helped Sam Kennison uh, come up with his screaming sort of bit. Mm, okay, well... Continue. <laughs> Continue. Oh, was that it? That, it um, okay. now, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know how much I, you know, from what I know, he was kind of a screamer when he was at the comedy store. I mean, the big or at the um, in Houston at the comedy workshop, and, and the kind of story there is that. After he got banned from the comedy workshop, he went across, Kinnison went across the street uh, to some gas station and set up a cross and kind of crucified himself and just kind of yelled at people at the comedy comedy place, uh, comedy uh, workshop uh, for, you know, Friday and Saturday nights. So I think he was kind of a yeller beforehand. Yeah, and actually, there's a good documentary on Sam Kemison that, that that explains that whole story, which yeah. is really funny. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and according to Andrew Dice Clay, that uh, he helped him with his trademark scream by helping him on his timing of how how to slowly build into that, and then eventually let out that primordial scream. But according to Sam Kennison's brother Bill, who is also Sam Kennison's. Uh, Manager, uh, his take on Dice claiming this is his, in his words, bullshit. <laughs> I, 
I think kind of, yeah, then you get another angle on the story, which is pretty interesting because, of course, these two were doing, uh, practicing their screams in the kitchen, and then also who slept uh, kind of near to the kitchen was Yakov Smirnov. So while they're practicing their screams, this wakes up Smirnov, and he wakes up, and he comes into the kitchen, and basically his story is that um, Dice and Clay, and, uh, Dice and Kinnison and some other people uh, were involved in this fake fight. And they all thought it was so funny that they should they should try it on stage. So they all so they all just kind of trek down to the comedy store, which is right down there down the hill. Uh, it was one o'clock in the morning, and there's nobody there. But they went ahead and did it anyway. And they just said it was just hilarious. That was like that was where Kinnison's scream was born, according to Smirnoff. Yeah, and that seems like what the fun of that house was in the more sort of innocent sort of times is that you lived right behind the comedy store, and the comedy store ran you know shows to like two in the morning and you know you could go there and conceivably just you know work on a bit and then just jump up on stage and do it and you know and you had a house full of people that were soon to be comedy legends yeah i mean and one of the other kind of not comedy but just kind of a legend in his own right this is like one of the surprising things i learned was that uh so after mm-hmm. argus hamilton who was the original kind of as we'll go back to one of the original guys who first stayed there after he moved out Another young comedian took over his room, and that was Tom Wilson, who many of you probably know better as Biff from the Back to the Future films. Good evening. I'm really, I'm really excited to be here. You excited to be here in this section over here? Huh? Come on! I'm not fooling around up here. I got a tuba, and I'll use it, folks. Okay? So he, yeah, he started out as a stand-up, which I never knew. Or or uh, the gym teacher from Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, but that was later on. No, I know. Right, okay. But same guy. Right, right. So people might know him <laughs> Soon better. Soon to be. Right, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and just as a side note, uh, if you watch that E! True Hollywood documentary on the Comedy Store, uh, one of the original comedians of the Comedy Store was Craig T. Nelson. Yeah, I, I, I saw the that. Actor. Yeah, that's weird. You forget about <laughs> it. just that. seems like... Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess he's he played coach. I guess that was a sitcom. Yeah, I mean, he was pre- he's pretty funny. I, I never watched it. He was in Poltergeist. Yeah, that's what I think of. I think of Poltergeist when I think of Craig T. Nelson. <laughs> he's from Texas. But he was like one of the first comedians of, of... Oh, he's a Texas guy? Pretty sure, yeah. I think he's from uh, Houston, maybe. All right, okay, yeah, yeah. So uh, when Tom Wilson, uh, soon to be Biff from Back to the Future, moved in... Uh, again, like going on, this was sort of like a comedy incubator. Um, Yakov Smirnov was starting to appear on like TV, like on the Johnny Carson show and Merv Griffin. And Wilson said that um, he would sit down and kind of role play doing panel with Yakov. So Yakov would be prepared uh, when, when they sat down and did panel with Johnny Carson or Merv Griffin. You know, the panel banter after you do yeah. the stand up set. <laughs> That would have, that would have been a, something to see seeing Bill Biff interview uh, Yakov Smirnoff. <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah, and, and we're talking about before uh, it was Tom Wilson actually uh, Biff who helped Yakov Smirnoff carry an eight foot painting of Yakov Smirnoff into the entryway of the house to hang over the Marin staircase. <laughs> All right, yeah, so they're even better. Uh, Biff carrying an eight foot tall painting of Yakov Smirnoff. Yeah, you'd want that on those video high rights yeah. reels. But you know, there, <laughs> the, the fake a, banter and <laughs> and the painting carrier. And it, but it was you know, Harmon wasn't all you know midnight parties and fun and games. I mean, these guys are all living de- together in a house. And the problem is, he did have one neat Nick, who surprisingly enough was Andrew Dice Clay, 
Yeah, and he would get he would get <laughs> yeah he would get very mad because nobody else would do their dishes. Yeah, and at one point he got so mad that he, he said, "If you don't do the dishes, I'm going to throw them out the window." <laughs> and and he probably threw in some homophobic, misogynistic uh, words, <laughs> probably as well, if he's keeping in his dice character. And <laughs> he took all the dishes and he and he threw them out the window. That's how we throw them in Brooklyn. So in 1985, that's when Sam Kennison officially moved in, and that's pretty much when all hell started to break loose because Kennison was at the kind of at the breakout point of his career. He just like stormed it on HBO Young Comedian Special, and it, which led to being on The Tonight Show and on Letterman and theater tours and, and hosting Saturday Night Live in that's pretty much when all the cocaine started to come in yeah, and in, into, into the party house. Yeah, I mean, just to throw this out there, too, is like, yeah, that's also the year that, so 86 was when um, his starring, or his super featured role in Back to School came out. And that's, you know, that kind of put him over the top as well. I was up on my knees in rice paddies with Johnson Edwards going up against Charlie, slugging it out with him while pussies like you were back there partying, putting headbands on, doing drugs. Listen to the goddamn Beatle albums! Ah! Oh, oh. hey, hey, Professor, take it easy, will you? I mean, these kids, they were in grade school at the time. And me, I'm not a fighter. I'm a lover. Yeah, and so he was like partying, you know, uh, to, to say a cliche, like a rock star, which ironically, there was a lot of rock stars that, that just loved Sam Kennison, and they would come and party at the house. Like people like... Uh, C.C. DeVille from Poison and Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. Um, Corey Feldman was possible there. And for for some reason, friends of uh, Sam Kennison. And they would all, you know, just party. They would... I I forgot who it is. It would be like uh, people would go to bed or they'd come home and uh, it would just be a, a group of like a dozen guys that had been up like all night. Still partying like in the afternoon. Yeah, I mean that's um, yeah that that was just like crazy. Yeah, that was like the, I talked about that to go back to that other outlaw comic guy Carl Lebov. Uh, him and his wife got married in 1985 to his wife Christy, and that's that that the uh, Crestill House is where they had their um, I guess their what do you call that after their reception their impromptu reception, mm-hmm. and that's the one that resulted into like a three day party with you know rock stars and everybody there and everybody just going going crazy. Yeah, and there's one rule Mitzi had it, it, about the house is that there uh, no couples allowed. You just had to be like single. Um, and again, it was like there were a few women who that lived in the house, uh, but for the most part, you know, it was like a boys' club uh, that lived it. And again, uh, who would you think would be the most anal retentive? Andrew Dice Clay, who didn't do drugs, uh, and he wanted to sleep, and he got you know pretty tired of the all night parties. So he went and he told Mitzi all about it, and they ended up kicking out Carla Ball and his wife and Sam Kennison out of the house. And that is what instigated the, the long-running Sam Kennison-Andrew Dice Clay feud. Yeah, that was that we've seen so far. I think we played it one of the last shows, but there's a clip of him on um, Arsenio Hall show. And that was, like, what, that was from, like, uh, what, what year is that clip from? That had to be... Um, it was probably about 90 is yeah. when uh, Ford Fairlane came yeah, out, so we're about, like we're 90, about, 91, yeah, eight, five, around that time frame. Yeah, five, six years later, these guys are still pissed at each other. 
Oh my god! And it's like it was just weird because it was like, uh, like Sam Kinison on stage would tell audiences that he hoped Andrew Dice Clay would die of inside out stomach cancer, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't know. I guess maybe again, am I like the judge reading Lenny Bruce transcripts that I'm just missing the context here of yeah. why that would have been funny yeah no it was, it was just it's you know somebody with a lot of power news somebody anger yeah anger and people well, were gonna, and a lot of drugs yeah and a lot of drugs yeah let's not leave that part out yeah um and they said for the most part it was a sort of a one-sided feud because i think dice was always like hey look they always want to get the guy who's on top they're always trying to get the guy who's on top and and sam kennis was like i hope he gets inside out stomach cancer yeah I mean that. I mean, from what we we've, we've talked about in our, our last episode and this episode, and what I read, you know what? Yeah, I might not like the Andrew Dice Clay character, but the person seems like an mm-hmm. all right guy. You know, like kept to himself, like to sleep, did his dishes. He would have been a good housemate. <laughs> so what you're saying, if you had to be choose a roommate, you would have chose Andrew Dice Clay, Andrew Silverstein. Over Sam Kennison. Yeah, like who would you, who would you pick of all these guys? And there, let's go back to the, these are technically housemates and not roommates. Oh, I'd have Yakov Smirnoff for mm-hmm. sure. Well, yeah, that would be that would. <laughs> that, that's like I'd pay to be Yakov. I would Yakov. Do you need help with that eight foot painting of yourself? I'll I'll hang it up for you over the stairwell. And I pay you with powdered donuts. Yeah, no, that would be like the triumph. Yakov, Yakov, do you want me to pretend to be Johnny Carson and interview you <laughs> yeah. again? Hey, hey, Andrew Dice Clay, can you do the dishes again? You know, so you got him doing the dishes. You got Yakov Smirno fixing all the plumbing and hanging up paintings. You know, that's yeah. That would be a sweet house. Yeah, the three of us, that would be all right. But on the other hand, Sam Kennison uh, and Carl LeBeau, Carl LeBeau lived there with his wife, and Sam Kennison was the other roommate. And in 1992, after Sam Kennison's death, it was disclosed that uh, Carl LeBeau's wife, uh, who had a daughter, uh, was actually fathered by roommate at the time, Sam Kennison. Oh my, what a surprise. Yeah, not a good roommate. No, not a good roommate. Be, so he would be the the worst roommate then to have. Yeah, and about this feud, I don't. This sounds sort of funny, but I think then he sort of a uh, little bit into the racist thing. Like he he would tell people like uh, Dice is Jewish. So what? Why do we call him? We shouldn't call him Dice. We should call him Dreidel. So Sam started calling him Dreidel. Yeah. it's... And Dice to, and in turn Dice told him to go fuck himself. Yeah, that's, know, that's not really that funny. Yeah, yeah, a little bit racist. Yeah, a little he, bit. He went for the he, he played the Jew card. Yeah, uh, not in, in, in his like anger, which is I don't know if that not too cool from yeah. a former preacher. Not not as racist as all, all uh, as our other uh, housemate at the time, Ollie Joe Prater, and. Uh, if you could drop yeah. in a little of his banter there. Yeah, so when was he a housemate, uh, Ali Joe Prater? Oh. And here is a little clip of some very dated 80s comedy that just wouldn't play so well in 2018. I've been up since 3 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> Got some bad news, folks. I was just sitting in the office watching TV. Uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson just pulled out of the Democratic National Race for President of the United States. Yes, it's a big scandal. Uh, they 
found some pictures of his mom in an old National Geographic. <laughs> yeah, he was just one of those 80s comics that does not date well. Yeah, so I, that must have been around 85, 86. But if you listen, I, I heard an interview with Polly uh, Shore who actually said Ali Joe uh, Prater is his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he'd never seen a comedian uh, kill on stage like like that comedian uh, did at the comedy store. He, he just like, he just said, he was just like one of the heavy hitters of the comedy store. Never became famous. Uh, now his material, extremely dated because it's overtly racist. Well, I... Um, yeah, but, but he he died early. I think he had a stroke. Yeah, and like, he was kind uh, of looked on a Wikipedia. Big fellow, but I, th- I think this, even that little clip. I mean, I think I could see. I I bet he was a popular because I could see him being popular with crowds, and he was probably one of those guys who could go up without any material, you know, and just kind of do crowd work, and you know, people would just love that. You know, they they love that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, and he's got. Nothing. Yeah, he's like an overweight guy yeah. in a in a cowboy hat, and yeah. and you just know that guy went on the road and did one nighters, and he would just probably be like the king of one nighters. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was that that thing, but that was back in the eighties. <coughs> Excuse me. When you could make a living at that, and you cannot be on making a living, you can make a lot of money at it. Oh yeah, you're making like a thousand dollars a week in eighties money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it would be yeah. So you know. It, yeah, again, it was part of the comedy boom where because you worked the comedy store, you could headline for $5,000 a week, you know, in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was oversaturation. There was too many clubs and uh, not enough comedians. So it's like, you know, comedians like that were like, you know, kings of the hinterlands. Yeah. These obscure sort of comedy venues uh where you could see that, uh, yeah, that guy would just kill on the road, but, you know, it just wouldn't play in, you know, like <laughs> normal place. New York or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So at the time, you know, because of like Sam Kennison and his love for, you know, cocaine and becoming a star, you know, again, the Crest Hill House was attracting people like, okay, not only like Billy Idol, Corey Feldman, but also it says here... Ted Nugent. Yeah, that would, have been, that would have been awesome. And then there is the... Um, there's but, but, he, but Ted Nugent never... He was a teetotaler too. Yeah. But he was probably there for the chicks. Yeah, he was just there for the ladies. Chicks and the guns. Because yeah. like Sam Kennison... Uh, like guns. I think he had guns. Yeah, and then yeah. there's the rumor that Eric Clapton was there one night and kind of played an impromptu gig. But nobody, nobody can confirm that really. It's just like pe- different people kind of tell the story, but nobody's story seems quite straight. Yeah, and like what Corey Feldman said, on any given night, on any day of the week, there would always be about 10 or 12 comics at the Crestfield House crowded around the massive oak table in the center, which was always uh, full of a mountain of cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Which would get tiring. And then came the arrival of another comedian. Uh, I don't think he partied so much. Uh, Jim Carrey. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh Feeling a little strange tonight, and I'm not sure why. Uh, no, I'm kidding you. That's just a little bit of a physical gag to get the show started off with a bang. And well, you won't be seeing much more physical humor in my show. <laughs> right now, he was probably uh, he was doing his thing. Yeah, but again, like going back to this was sort of a comedy incubator. Like Jim Carrey's original act was he would do like these impressions. Like he'd go, 
he would like contort his face going, I'm James Dean and, and all that. And you can find the clips on YouTube and it's, it, you know, it's kind of funny, but he was, he, he told Sam that he was like so sick of his act. And then, you know, there, like Sam told him to, you know, drop it and just become yourself. And, uh, he actually stopped doing his act where I think it was like opening for Rodney Dangerfield in Vegas. So, mm-hmm. you know, he was making good money being a comedian, but he completely ditched his act and then he went through a period where he would just go up on stage with no material and just, you know, try to incubate, you know, trying to reinvent his voice right. uh, and, and his, his routine. But he completely ditched like a Vegas worthy act, which was probably making him good money mm-hmm. to like and he was just like so sick of it. Yeah. But, you know, he just wanted to kind of reinvent himself. Well, Harmon, this brings us to the year, the, the fateful year of 1987, where we had a young, a young comedian from the East Coast by the name of Mark Marin who moved, in, who moved into the, uh, the room that, that Andrew Dice Clay had recently vacated. And he simply describes his time as a big, dark baptism. And like Kinnison before him, uh, he worked as the doorman at the comedy store while also doing sets and then staying at the Crestal House. I guess we are spiritually uh, bankrupt on a certain to a certain degree. You know, I don't know. I think it's because I think it's because God doesn't talk to people like he used to. I mean, you read the Bible it's like every other day. Yeah. Abraham, this is God. Go to the mountain, bring your kid, kill him. I'll be your friend. <laughs> Yeah, so he described his time of uh, being at the Crest Hill House uh, was like an initiation that turned out to be one of the most disturbing and mentally destructive eight months of his life. <laughs> um, yeah, he still talks about it so on, his, you, yeah, on his podcast. He talks about it a lot. Yeah, so like one night early on, uh, he just found himself doing blow like one-on-one with Sam Kennison. And I think Sam was burning money, like Literally or just figuratively? Probably just figure this I don't know. up the nose, yeah. Just just like that. Yeah, so uh, Mark Marin was kind of the new guy, and, uh, and he uh, talks about in this BuzzFeed article that one night uh, the coke ran out, so he drove Kennison to his uh, drug dealer's apartment where Kennison downed like several airplane bottles of Smirnoff before passing out, and the drug dealer insisted that Marin drag Kennison home because he didn't want another Belushi on his hands. <laughs> or yeah. I said, oh no, the quote was, I don't want him to, to pull a Belushi on me. Right. Which was a uh, reference to John Belushi who did drugs and died at the Chateau Marmont. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, so Mark Barron would, uh, through, um, through Kinnison in his car, drove him back to Crest Hill, and then he pulls him out and just laid him face down on the living room floor, and, and Kinnison went to, to sleep, which according to Marin, he did a lot. And so Marin quickly became, he kind of became the kind of uh, side host of the parties. Uh, he would kind of host the parties that Sam would want to have. And for some pe- peculiar reason, a Hollywood reason, uh, they would have these, their biggest parties on Monday nights. When everyone who was anyone from all over the dark crevices of Hollywood would crawl in to see Sam. Yeah, he would hold court there. And uh, for some reason, Mitzi generally kept her distance away from the house. And at one point, the house itself started to resemble its inhabitants a little bit kind of haggard. Just like things were just falling apart and not being fixed. And there was like guys living in every nook and cranny. Uh, You'd go into the basement and there'd be like someone 
huddled in a sleeping bag or someone like on a mattress. Uh, so again, the house was just sort of coming to uh, a breaking point. And Carl Lebeau said he he'd work all he would he'd be gone all day. Then he'd work as a doorman at night and do his spots. And he'd come home and there'd just always be a big party until like. Uh, uh, you know, to late hours of the night. But he said, like, the upside was uh, the balcony of, of of the house was kind of the big, you know, point. You'd be a young comedian, you look out on the city and, and just look at, like, you know, celebrate, you know, what you've given up to go fulfill chasing your dream of uh, comedy. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, this, which is, you know, that's a nice uh, bookend to this time where, like, things started getting really dark. Uh, with Kinnison, you know, people were just saying Kinnison was out of control. He would just do a lot of drugs and get really violent. Just anybody else who was there. Uh, I think Marin talks about one party where Kinnison uh, <laughs> smacked around uh, one of the guys who was booking at the comedy store, and he smacked him around, and then yeah. all of a sudden kissed him on the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he's messed up with drugs. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and uh, ooh, this is dark. <laughs> yeah. uh, he says, like, another point, a girl passed out on a bed, and Kennison pissed on her. <laughs> and as Marin yeah. said, uh, which goes uh, understatement, it was fucked up shit. Yeah, that, that um, and, and after eight months of living in the house, uh, Marin realized that he was starting to become into mental trouble and he realized someone was going to die or something's or someone's going to go down for real and it could be me. <laughs> yeah. I mean then we get into tales of um, from Marin dealing with Kinnison and and uh, Satan worshiping heroin addicts and stolen guitar equipment and people getting dangled over the balcony and doors getting kicked in. I mean things were getting pretty out of control there. Yeah, I think that one time, yeah, he let some uh, uh, heroin addict sleep in his room, and like Kennison had his guitars in Marin's room, and he, and Marin went to go pick up his friend at the airport, and when he got back, uh, Sam, uh, who was doing coke at the table, said, uh, uh, "I pissed on your bed, Marin. You want to know why? Because you let that moron sleep with my guitars." And, and Marin turned to his friend uh, who he picked up at the airport and said, see, I told you I knew the guy. Yeah, so he was... <laughs> meaning, he was, meaning Kennison. Yeah, he was more... Uh, wanted to make sure that his friend knew that he, that he knew uh, Kennison more than his pissed on bed. Yeah, so the final straw of kind of ending this sort of era would be like, I think after one ruckus party, uh, Kennison led revelers into tossing all the expensive pieces of furniture off the back deck. So by 1988, Mitzi decided enough was enough, and the comics were told to get the hell out of the the um, Crest Hill, and the party was over. Yeah, that was, that was the end. The end of the end was 19, 1988. Oh, yeah, yeah, because in 1988, uh, it, well, the comedians still lived there, but Mitzi uh, did a 360, and she turned the Crest Hill into a, a halfway house for... Uh, uh, surprise, spoiler alert, a lot of these comedians ended up with uh, substance abuse problems. Such as Argus Hamilton, who was like, uh, again, it, uh, uh, why we haven't heard of him is like basically uh, drugs and alcohol destroyed his career. Well, he's still doing, he's still out there, Harmon. I think, I think Argus, if you go look at his website, 
I think he would argue with you that his his career's he's doing all right. He's not hosting the Tonight Show like everybody thought he was going. Oh, to. Oh, dude, it's I don't know, dude. I think it becomes at a point it's a Dante level of purgatory when you're just you know on the road, you know, <laughs> after decades. Well, I mean, his his humor column appears in over a hundred publications. If you go to the ArgusHamilton.com website. <laughs> According to the Argus Hamilton uh, website, yeah, it was a, yeah. a plug for old Argus. Um, yeah, so like, yeah, it was all it was like a, like a for real uh, halfway house dorm rooms, you know. And there was a counselor with a medical license on duty at all times there in the house, so it was like group therapy, everything you'd you'd need in a uh, recovery type house for uh, what, what. Yeah, they, they and they had a guy stay there at night to make sure nobody hurts themselves. And then uh, going 360, Argus Hamilton moved back to the Crest Hill house. Oh, that's that's beautiful. This time yeah. at because it was it was a halfway house, right? And he was getting ready to work on his website, ArgusHamilton.com. Yeah. So you think that would be the end of the story, but uh-oh, every story has a second act. This would actually be the third act. Uh, um, the, the last comedian to live in the Crest Hill house. Uh, any idea, Scott? Hmm, a comedian uh, lived there would be... Would Who might have had a mom that owned the comedy store. Would it be the weasel? So I'm kind of bummed out, though, because I didn't grow up in the middle of the country. I grew up in Hollywood. I don't have that family upbringing like you guys with the Wonder Bread, the gravy, dad coming downstairs in his polka dot box. Just pull my finger, you know. That, you know. Hey, buddy. <laughs> no comedy weasel. Yeah, so in 1991, Polly Shore, uh, whose mom is Mitzi Shore, ended up uh, living in the Crestwell house, and he actually filmed some of the episodes of his MTV show, Totally Polly, were filmed at the locale. Yeah, I think even um, at the time there, even at the time, like, um, Mitzi was kind of pushing for them to do some kind of sitcom kind of based in the house. They were trying to sell it that Oh, way. yeah, yeah, we forgot that bit. They, they actually did. They filmed the pilot, like, sometime in the 80s. And according to the people that saw it, uh, it was awful. No, yeah, you couldn't. I don't think you could do a sitcom. I think you could do. A, well, I think you could do something. Yeah. There's something like a, a house full of comedians living together. Oh my god! Well, again, dice well, throwing the dishes out the thing. I think if they made it like <laughs> how it was, that would be interesting. Well, that would be hard. I think you'd have to not not a sitcom. I think you just have to. It would have to just be really dark, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. It'd be, it'd be like a uh, stand up yeah. Breaking Bad sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And just the you know the amount of drugs that were going around in the '80s. But even in the 90s, like even while Paulie was there, then they continued to kind of party there. Uh, for example, um, Brett Ratner moved, uh, lived there in 1996. Yes. We also had... Rush, Rush Hour director. Right? And yep. then speaking of drugs, we had Andy Dick living there for a while, Stephen Baldwin, Anna Nicole Smith, Allison Chains lead singer. Well, I don't think they were living... I think... No, I think they were just people who, who would party there. Oh, I don't, okay. I don't think the, that... Last group are people that uh, lived there. Okay, um, but yeah, those are people that would come to the party. They would come to the party. No, no, they were just they were just partying with Brett, Brett Ratner and Polly Shore, maybe. Yeah, and uh, one person back in his drug days used to sometimes stay in the basement. Uh, Robert Downey Jr., uh, but then again, he would also crash in strangers' houses <laughs> in Malibu, yeah. who would have to call the police. <laughs> to find Robert Downey, yeah, <laughs> that, that boy liked his drugs. Yeah. 
So basically, uh, that just to bring us back to modern day, the current owner is a man named Josh Abrams, who's a recording ex- executive who's worked with such artists as Pink and Carrie Perry. Um, and the house is now listed on the market for $3.29 million. Oh, man, that's, that's, a, that's a hefty paycheck right there. Yeah, I mean, it's a yeah, it's pretty hefty paycheck. Um, but uh, I went on the real estate listing site, and they actually trumpet up the fact that this was the Coke Field Party House. Oh wow, really? Um, here's what it here's what it said on the real estate site: When the comedy store shut down for the night, the late night crowd used to scoot up up the street to Crest Hill, where guests included the likes of Willie Nelson, Robin Williams, Rod Stewart. And, in parentheses, a mountain of cocaine. All right. This is on the real estate site. <laughs> well, the, I mean, in, in, in L.A., they say, yeah, cool, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the L.A. real estate listing. L.A. real estate listing. Yeah, in New York, I think it would be a bit different. Yeah. You would no. trumpet a mountain of cocaine. No, no. <laughs> no you're back in the day, yeah. Yeah, and it's a final footnote. Like, Polly Shore at one time was, uh, uh, after he moved out, like, up recently, uh, within the last few years, was interested in trying to buy the house. Oh, really? Yeah. I think his brother works in real estate. Yeah. I met his brother one time. Um, I got to cover the Cannes Film Festival, and there was, like, American Pavilion, and his brother would always be at the uh, American Pavilion. It was kind of like just a hangout spot, uh-huh. uh, like a tent. Yeah. So, um, and I think he worked in real estate as well. Yeah, I think so. That's his twin brother or something. It's like, yeah, that, that's kind of weird. You thinking about there's a there's another Polly out there? Does he? Have, I don't, no, he doesn't have a twin. Oh, this was his older brother. Okay, I think his right. brother's name is Scott okay. or something like that. All so right. yeah, like like your name. That's me. That's me, Scott. <laughs> so I think that just about does it uh, for the history of the Comedy Store condo here on Comedy History One Hundred and One. Scott, do you have anything you like to plug? Um, drugs. Sorry, I'm, st- I'm still stuck in the 80s, Armin. Whoa, let me get out. Let me get out. Whoa, <laughs> um, Whoa did in Russia, Kokanir watches you. Mir does you. Well, Armin, you and I have our, our podcast, This is the President. Uh, coming up soon, we'll have your, uh, your guest appearance where it's, you're talking about LBJ's dog. So that's p- going to be pretty exciting, and look for that in the next couple of weeks. You can find that on wherever you can find your favorite podcasts, like iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Yes, and if you like our podcast, uh, please support us. We, we need your support. Uh, subscribe on iTunes. Leave a comment. We will read your comments here on the air. And also support us. Throw in a, a dollar or two on our Patreon page. Am I yeah, saying that correctly? That's it. I Patreon? think that's it. Yeah, not, not um, what were you calling it? Pal- Palladium? Patreon. No, you're calling it. Yeah, Palladium Con. Palladium Con. <laughs> yeah. Patreon page. <laughs> Yeah, Patreon. yeah, just throw in a dollar or two. Support support the podcast. Uh, help us keep going because uh, we, we we enjoy putting in the extra time uh, for you guys and finding out these interesting bits of comedy history. Uh, one last thing for me to plug is I have a new book out. Uh, it's called Meet the Deplorables, Infiltrating Trump America. And, of course, you can find that on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You can also find the podcast on our website at wordsoverchair.com. So go over there, download it, listen to it online, or click over to iTunes and listen to it there. But whatever you do, be sure to subscribe and leave a comment. And until next time, bye bye bye. bye.
Comedy History 101.